Before we get to today's show, I'd like to invite you to become a part of this show. If you have hiked the John Muir Trail, whether you section hiked it or through hiked it, or if you intend to hike it in the future, then give us a call, 818-925-0106, and please leave a voicemail telling us a little bit about your experience, a memory, a hardship, what you're looking forward to, or how it affected your life positively or even negatively. At the end of this season, I am hoping to collect these voice messages and edit them into an episode focused on the John Muir Trail. So if you would like to potentially have your voicemail appear on the show, call us up, 818-925-0106. Leave us your name, whether that is your real name or your trail name, where you are located, and give us your thoughts within three minutes about the John Muir Trail. Thank you ahead of time, and let's get to the show. Everybody. Welcome to episode 93 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back. Welcome aboard. There are lots of training programs out there, but not a lot targeting adventure athletes in particular. And that is why today we are speaking to Rowan Smith. He is an adventure trainer in Sydney, Australia, and he helps people train specifically for mountaineering and trekking. He is also the creator of the Training for Trekking podcast, and he gives away a lot of useful free advice on Instagram under the moniker summitstrength.au. He and I spoke over Skype back in July, long before the various fires broke out in Australia. I have spoken to him since, and he does seem to be doing okay, despite the fact that large portions of his country are on fire and smoke is prevalent everywhere. We wish him the best and everyone in Australia, and hopefully this gets sorted very soon. In the meantime, let's travel back to July in happier days in Australia to talk to Rowan about what it's like to grow up in Australia, his life and history in the outdoors, his travels, including some of his naive mistakes when he was younger, and the realities of training people specifically for adventure activities. So let us go now and speak to Rowan Smith. So yeah, my name's Rowan Smith. I'm from Sydney, Australia, so other side of the world to I'm guessing most of the listeners. 
I'm a personal trainer who specializes in working with hikers, trekkers, and mountaineers who are preparing for their bucket list adventures. So I've been lucky enough in my life to manage to combine two of my major passions, um, which is both adventure and sports performance, and then turn that into sort of my lifelong work. And so you say you're in Sydney now. Were you born in Sydney or were you born elsewhere? Uh, yeah, born in Sydney. So I'm still living in the local hometown. I've sort of lived in Sydney more or less my whole life. I spent a couple of years or maybe three years over living in the UK over in London and then I've done a ducked out on backpacking trips and holidays here and there but majority of my life lived in Sydney which you know I absolutely love. So what are the questions you're sick of people asking you about Australia and the stupid things that people say to you when they hear you from Australia and they aren't? <laughs> I think it's it's always snakes and spiders always snakes and spiders and you know we do get a lot of them but they're not quite as uh, at least in the cities they're not quite as scary as you'd first think you know living over in London that was the first thing that always came up it was like oh I'd love to live in Australia but I couldn't deal with the snakes or I couldn't deal with the spiders and you're like oh all right you know it's just like everything else if you know no sort of what you're doing then it's no dramas and the country blokes are a little bit different but first one to admit I'm a bit of a city boy so <laughs> don't have to worry about that too much I mean I guess a good thing is Crocodile Dundee is old enough now that you don't probably get pestered with that as much as I bet you would have 20 years ago <laughs> yeah not quite as much we still get the Steve <laughs> Irwin all the time even though you know he's not kicking around so much but everyone still seems to uh, remember him fondly and always get his crikey coming out all the time. So yeah, it will still get some. So let's talk about what it was like for real for you growing up in the alleged land of spiders and snakes. So let's hear what it's really like when you grow up in Sydney, Australia. <laughs> well, you know, I guess there is an element of truth to it because obviously you do learn when you're younger you know, if you're leaving your shoes outside in like a damp area, you've got to bang out your shoes to make sure there's nothing living in it. Quite often, a lot of my friends, they would um, have, you know, these relatively like quite big houses and they'd have pool areas which would be backing onto a bit of bush, even in sort of suburbia over here. And they would be sort of renowned for the, the old funnel web spiders, which, you know, are the really, really dangerous ones. And they get a few a year, which doesn't sound like much, but, you know, as a kid running around a pool, it's not great. So you would be aware of these things um, because they were apparent but for me you know I backed onto a whole bunch of bush we used to crawl around the bushes all day every day and we you know at most we get a little spider bite which would flare up a little bit but it wasn't poisonous or anything <laughs> the, you know and at school you learn you know don't poke snakes and don't chase them around if you do see them but you know that's just for the the worst case scenario really so yeah in all honesty there's nothing too major here the worst things are the blue bottles in the ocean. They're, they're my absolute mortal em enemy. The uh, Portuguese man of wars, and they don't kill you, but they just sting you to all sorts. And I grew up on the ocean, and I used to, well, I still do. They're absolutely the worst thing in the world. And anytime I see them, instant mood switch. I'm like, oh, I can't stand that. <laughs> <laughs> so your mortal enemy is there in the yeah. ocean for you. So yeah. let's talk about other than spiders and snakes and Portuguese man of war. As you grew up out there, you said you're a bit of a city kid, but it sounds like you probably spent a fair amount of time in nature or at least a fair amount of time fighting Portuguese man of war. So what was that like? How did you come from where you were as a child to where you are here as an adult? I say I'm a city kid for Australia and, you know, compared to the rest of the world, our cities aren't really that big. So I live in Sydney, but suburbia of the city. So I'm sort of like one foot in, one foot out. Um, when I was younger, 
sort of the majority of my life, my youth was sort of all around just being active and getting out and doing whatever. So whether it was just cruising around a bike ride, whether it was going for bushwalks or hiking, I did a lot of scouts. So we did a lot of adventure sports and things like a little bit of canyoning and a little bit of kayaking. And where I live, at least all of it's relatively accessible and we're quite close to the beach here, lucky enough. So uh, water sports was a big part of it as well. And then growing up, like it sort of went from just kicking around with my family in the bush and enjoying that to scouts to really, really enjoying that for quite a few years to eventually it sort of got to the stage where unfortunately it wasn't so cool anymore. You know, for, you know, many, many people dropped out of it in my teenage years. So <laughs> then I fell out of it because I was, you know, any old teenage guy trying to look after his image. And I fell into um, the life of bodyboarding, which you know, that was my passion for quite a few years for sort of down the beach most days trying to chase waves. We always thought we were a bit better than the surfers because we could <laughs> surf different waves and all that. And then all my sort of holidays and all of that was centered exactly around that. So I'd be going up and down the coast trying to find, you know, I used to say chase the perfect wave, but, you know, it was far from that. I was just trying to find something that was semi-rideable and, you know, as you always, when you're younger, you have dreams of where that type of stuff can take you, but you know, I wasn't anywhere near good enough to compete or anything like that. Got out of high school and then the sort of whole big wide world opened up for me. So, you know, I did my first backpacking trip or, you know, just traveling trip and spent four months over in Brazil when I first got out of high school. Then every sort of year after that, I went to uni and in the uni holidays, we'll be ducking around. I sort of went to a few different countries or traveled around Australia and for about five or six years, my life was sort of centered around that backpacking lifestyle. So not backpacking with a heavy pack into the bush, but, you know, through different cultures and different countries and really, really exploring that. And then these days I'm back in Sydney and sort of involved with the adventure world in a bit of a different way, a bit more of a professional sense, which is a very, very different, but sort of just as satisfying, I think. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about when you were backpacking around the world, because it sounds like you kind of chose to do it at that point where you're like just old enough so that you can kind of get introduced to the world, but not old enough so that you know anything. So, so let's talk <laughs> a little bit about like what those experiences were and kind of what you came to learn about the world around you that you probably didn't know because you're probably relatively naive at that point. Oh, man, I have the, the biggest smile on my face right now <laughs> just thinking about that because relatively naive is just, you know, it's such an understatement. <laughs> like, oh, man. So I had my ambition was like I've got three older brothers, so I've always been relatively competitive. Two of them did quite a bit of traveling when they left outside of high school and they went over to Europe and they did their trips and a lot of Aussies do. And I was like, you know what? I want to do something like I don't want to be the youngest kid. I want to do something, push it a little bit more. I want to like have a bit more challenge. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to Brazil because that's a brand new country. None of my family's been there. Different language. And I was like, you know what? That's about the extent of my thoughts. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to book a ticket and go over there. And I went over there with, you know, first time out of Australia, you know, maybe a few sentences of Portuguese under my belt and just flew in there, sort of trusting everyone, thinking it's going to be an amazing experience, which it was, <laughs> but there was um, definitely a steep learning curve when it came to realizing, you know, for one, English isn't the answer everywhere. <laughs> Didn't really appreciate in Australia how important different languages were. So that was a bit of a learning curve. And then, you know, there was this whole, whole thing over there is for tourists, at least, you've really, really got to be smart all the time and you can't have that let your guard down or do anything stupid or the second that you do something dumb, someone's going to take advantage of you, which is, you know, it's fair enough, you know, that's that's just the way things are. And I sort of went in with the, the sometimes maybe partying a little bit too much or going out hiking into the middle of nowhere and not really knowing what I was doing. And I got away with it for most of the time. And then I think about two and a half months into the trip, I'd sort of gotten, spent a bit of time in a small town, forgotten all my 
weariness and all my uh, all my sort of street smarts, I suppose, that I'd hard-earned and then fell asleep on a bus, lost everything. I lost my passport and all my money and all my credit cards, all my photos. And that was like a massive like, whoa, okay, I am actually in another country. I've got to be wary. That was a bit of a, a bit of a worry. So that was sort of a bit of wake up call for me in the sense. So, of don't so be... how, how do you handle that? Do you just go straight to an embassy and try to work that out? Or do you just have <laughs> so, no idea what to do? Cause you're like 20 years old or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, the issue was the embassy was 36 hours travel away oh, um, or something like that, which was <laughs> Brazil's a huge country and the embassy was in the middle of nowhere. So basically, uh, I had to communicate via post with this uh, the embassy and do all, everything through express mail to try and get an emergency passport. But then the people on the phone kept on telling me the wrong thing. So I think it was three or four times, or three times I sent the wrong application in. So it ended up being a two-week ordeal of me just sort of shacked up in this hostel with no money to go enjoy myself in a city I didn't really enjoy, in all honesty, and just waiting for that clearance of getting my passport. So that was... Uh, probably the most stressful time of my young life, but we got through it and we got stronger. Yeah. How were you eating and paying for the hostel and all that if everything was taken? I had a little bit of money like hidden away in my big bag. So I like basically I had my day pack nicked, which I was just dumb enough to leave okay. everything in. So I had a little bit of money to get me through. And then I had, you know, got on the phone to my parents. We figured out something. And also just the kindness of uh, the kindness of the people at the hostel. They sort of, you know, took pity on me and helped like with bank transfers i needed sort of a local there to basically prove that i was there so i could transfer money over and so we organized something that from home i could transfer money to one of the owners and it was just this really really nice thing these people went out of the way to sort me out and it was just you know on this the minimum was just hanging out and you know it's not an expensive country over there so but it was just <laughs> trying not to go too de- too dark and too sad into that little uh, <laughs> bit of depression you occasionally go into <laughs> yeah but once those two weeks were done then I was like you know what let's get back into it you know pick myself up and away we went again <laughs> and I bet you didn't sleep on any more buses oh no way like I don't know what I like I literally <laughs> told myself as I was putting the bag up there I was like that's stupid what are you doing and then I got distracted and <laughs> and then I woke up when it was gone. So, uh, you know, yeah. So a learning curve there. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a pretty good life lesson to pick up there in a foreign country. I'm sure you made better decisions, but probably still a more few more foolish decisions after that. Uh, the next trip I did was the year after I spent a couple of months in India in my uni holidays. And I did the same thing, at Lex, but at least this time, none of my stuff was in my bag. I only lost like a few little bits and pieces, but I was using my day pack as a pillow on a train and fell asleep and woke up and it was gone. And I was like, oh my gosh, like you'd think you'd learn, you know, <laughs> what can you do? But at least, yeah, that time I didn't lose anything, but I was like, hmm, this is looking scarily familiar. You're like, oh, I'm expert on this. Uh, this is no big deal at this point. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> so you'd mentioned earlier that you also lived in the UK for a bit. So what brought you over there? When Once I finished uni, I'd been doing these little trips for two or three months in our uni holidays. And then came the end of uni and I was like, look, I don't, I don't really want to start on my career right yet. I've still got a lot of exploring to do and I haven't seen any of Europe. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to go over to to London, the UK, live over there and just use that as a base of operations to go shoot around to Europe as much as I could. And I also had um, my oldest brother. He was living up in the north of England. 
and he was having a, having a little baby. So I was like, you know what, that's a perfect opportunity. So I went and lived with them, you know, when the little baby was born. And then I sort of would duck away and go to Greece or go to Portugal for a few weeks and come back and eat their food and sleep in their bed, then duck away again. I did that for about six months. And then I had a few friends from Australia who came into London as well. And we were like, you know what, let's all get a house together and we'll live together and we'll do exactly the same thing. So for about a year, we all lived together and party together and travel together. Unfortunately, there was five of us, four of them fell in love and moved in with their girlfriends and all, left poor all old with me each by other? myself. Not with, <laughs> no, not with each other. But uh, yeah, so they all moved in with their girlfriends and left me hanging basically. And I was like, oh, what do I do now? So, so you yeah, went and took I- a nap on the nearest bus and woke up without a pack. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So then after that, you head back to Australia. And is that how you started getting into your current career here? Or did something else happen along the way before you ended up where you are now? In between, between Australia and there, I did a little bit more traveling. So worked in Portugal for a couple of months and went through Southeast Asia for about six months. But when I came back home, I was, you know, broke, tired, poor, need of something, a bit of stability in my life. And at that stage, I'd been a personal trainer for probably about six years. And that was how I was funding all my travels. And I got back into Sydney and one of my friends, we were having a chat and she was like, look, at the gym I'm working at, they need a new trainer if you want to come interview for it. I was like, yeah, sweet. So I went in and it turned out to be um, one of these simulated attitude gyms where, you know, they pump a bunch of nitrogen into the room and it's supposed to simulate the effects of high attitude, which it does to a degree but not 100% exactly but that was where I was first exposed to trekkers and mountaineers for the first time um, in a professional sense and they were coming to that place to train for things like Everest Base Camp or Kilimanjaro or uh, Machu Picchu and in Australia we don't have any attitude whatsoever like our highest mountain is a hill basically (laughs) so (laughs) they were trying to use that as a solution to basically prepare for these adventures and these bucket list adventures which they'd were just throwing themselves into was working there and I sort of really really enjoyed working with that population and I just realized that for the information out there for them it was just really really average and like for most sports in the world and most occupations in the world there's a reasonable amount of information out there that's really really science backed it's evidence backed and it's some really quality training information but for hikers and trekkers and mountaineers it's rubbish and like all the stuff out there it's just like go out hiking and push yourself to the limit and eventually you'll get fit so i was like you know what there's a real big opportunity here to to really step away from the whole you know weight loss and muscle gain world which i've been part of for quite a while which is a bit you know a bit the same same and a million people are doing that to something where I could like genuinely make a bit of an impact and I could really, really see myself in, you know, 5, 10, 15, even 30 years making a, a really significant impact in not only in the clients that I'm working with, but also the whole adventure community in the world, basically. Yeah, that's sort of where what led me to be where I am right now. Let's talk about some of those things where you're saying what's kind of readily available to everybody when it comes to these particular activities is it's kind of crappy. What are some examples of kind of the approaches you take that vary from that and that can be more beneficial to people than just what you said walk around (laughs) work out and hope for the best what happens over this side of the world and it does happen most places is when people are preparing for these adventures they're given like one of these pre-made preparation programs which will literally say go out and do walking three or four times a week start a half an hour time and work up to maybe two hours three times a week and go hiking on the weekends and And then at most, if they're saying, hey, do some stuff outside of walking, it might be just do some squats or lunges in the gym. And anyone with, you know, a background in exercise performance or personal training will sort of know pretty straight away that, look, that's been written by someone who doesn't really know what they're talking about. It works if people do it, but doesn't really, you know, there's a lot of time wasted there and it's not very, very effective. And 
And so what I try to do with my clients is one, trying to minimize the time commitment. So most people in everyday life don't really have two hours every second day to go walking and they might be lucky to get out hiking on the weekends. Two, bring a little bit more sort of science and structure to the process and sort of focus on things like 75% of hikers will suffer from some type of knee pain on the trail. That's absolutely huge. And, you know, particularly when they're walking downhill, that just really, really gets a lot of people. And the normal preparation stuff just doesn't do anything to help that. So I do a really, really big emphasis on, you know, particular things that you can sort of eliminate knee pain or help stop your foot pain or your back pain. And even if people aren't going on these major treks, if they're just walking in the local national park, like a lot of people suffer from these things anyway. So I really try to put a big emphasis on that. And then also just putting a little bit of structure behind things. Like I could get really, real sciencey right now, but probably no one's very interested in that. But like purely some people just, you know, particularly for their hike training, if they're leading up to a big hike and they're like, I need to get fit on the weekends, they'll just go out and do a bunch of random hikes. And some might be hard, some might be difficult, some might be easy but there's no real thought behind it. And as simple as getting out your calendar and planning out the next 10 hikes you're gonna be doing and making sure the next one's a little bit longer, a little bit more difficult, that's super, super common sense, but so many people don't do it. So I try to do a little bit of a emphasis on that type of thing. And you know, a lot of it might be common sense, but you know, it gets skipped over quite a bit, but it can make a really, really big difference. So here's where I'm gonna be selfish and I'm gonna make the show about me for a second. Because <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned specifically knee pain and that, that is something that I definitely deal with. Uh, so what's some of your advice that you give people for strengthening their knees and dealing with those knee pains? Because I am preparing for the John Muir Trail, which is 200-ish miles and a lot of elevation change from, you know, 9,000 to 14,000 feet and back and forth over a few weeks. So, yeah, what's your advice to me to take care of these knees and strengthen them? Oh, mate, like this is favorite topic, so brace yourself here. (laughs) (laughs) So basically, yeah, as I said, knee pain is super, super, super common. Well, the first thing that most people do when they suffer from a bit of knee pain is they'll go into Google, they'll go on Facebook, they're like, hey, I get knee pain when I'm hiking, what do I do? And the standard answers to all of that is basically get some orthotics, um, get your pack fitted, get some new boots. You know, those are the answers that everyone, everyone throws out. They do give, like, if you use it right, it does give you some relief. But I always say those things are just band-aid solutions in the sense that they might take a bit, give you a little bit of relief, but it's not actually fixing the underlying issues. So number one, every time you stop using, say, your orthotics or stop using your new boots, then it's going to come back. Or two, it just doesn't ever get better and you're just in constant mild discomfort or it gets worse and worse. So what I do put a big focus on is sort of strength and mobility specific strength mobility to help that joint out and move how it should to get a little bit sciencey basically your knee is supposed to be a really really stable joint in the sense that as opposed to the usual flexing extending you might do when say kicking a ball or walking or running or anything there really shouldn't be a huge amount of mobility uh, movement through it alternatively the joints below and above it so the ankles and the hips they both be want to be really mobile joints which means they just want to move freely, they want to move happily, they don't want to really be too restricted. In everyday life, due to a whole bunch of different reasons, sort of like sitting down every day, dodgy footwear, whatever, um, both the ankles and the hips get really, really, really tight. And so when we're walking or jogging or jumping or whatever, and the body's trying to find movement through the, through the ankles or the hips where it should naturally to absorb force and do yada, 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 if it can't th- find movement through those two joints, then it'll compensate by allowing movement through the knee which is really, really not a good thing. Um, and that's where a lot of pain comes from. So that's one step. And so nine times out of 10 people experiencing knee pain will will have either hard ankles or tight hips. So we put a big emphasis on just loosening that off with stretching or foam rolling or whatever you might be doing. 
On the other side of things is any type of mobility, we really put an emphasis on strength as well. So trying to strengthen up the supporting muscles of the knee. Um, the two major supporting muscles of the knee are your quads, which you're gonna be working through things like pretty standard like step ups and lunges and squats and stuff like that, which many, many people are familiar with. But one that often gets neglected are your glutes, which are your bum. So they're the biggest muscle in the world, really, really important for stabilizing um, your knee. And not many people and not many traditional training programs really put much emphasis on that. So again, nine times out of 10, if you can spend four weeks strengthening up that glute or those glutes, it'll take a huge amount of pressure off your knee and then it can really, really be absolutely amazing. They're sort of the two main things. And if you put a little bit of thought into that and a little bit um, a little bit of time, a little bit of commitment, it can really, really go a huge amount away for your knees and just increase that enjoyment on the trail so you're not wincing every time you see a downhill or you know, just absolutely hating it. Yeah, there we go. Thanks for letting me go on a little bit of spiel there. <laughs> no, that's great. Uh, I'm trying to figure out how I can make the rest of the show all about my problems and see if you can <laughs> see if I can get a free consultation here. <laughs> what What are some of the issues? I mean, other than obviously knee pain and the things you mentioned, what are some of the issues you see people coming in with and, and what are the results that you're seeing based on kind of these new approaches that you're doing instead of just these classic things that you had originally learned? Yeah, like there's the other thing of like lower back pain is probably just as common as everything else and you know everyone gets it everyone deals with it just for everyday life so something doing very very similar to the knee pain is sort of loosening up particular muscles such as the hips or the upper back strengthening up the glutes can go a long way to lower back pain so that's something I would say 95% of people who come to see me or either in person or online they either have knee pain or lower back pain so that's a really really big portion of my business Beyond that, once that type of stuff gets sorted, then the issues are sort of like, hey, I've got to go climb up a mountain and particularly in Sydney, we've got zero hills to train on and zero mountains to train on. So they're like, how do I get ready for that type of elevation? And so that'll be you know, a bit of applying a bit more structured strength training. So beyond just strength training for injury prevention, but trying to build a little bit of more force that can be produced through the muscles um, and also doing specific interval training for that particular thing so you might not have a, a massive mountain to train on but more than likely you can find a hill that will take you three or four minutes to climb up or a section of trail that's relatively steep or even a set of stairs in an office apartment or a tower block and we can sort of throw in some specific stress sessions around that to get you used to walking walking up all day and and that again has shown you know i've got a reasonable amount of success doing that type of stuff because a huge amount of my uh, clients go up to what well, most of them are mountain treks so kilimanjaro or Kokoda Trail over our way, which is up and down all the time, or Everest Base Camp, which has still got a fair amount of elevation. Everyone's making it, everyone's pretty happy, and everyone's more or less leading the pack when they go up, and we have zero mountains, so I'm pretty happy with the results so far. You're kind of mentioning how dealing with the elevation change, and so you you have to simulate that to a certain degree where you are. But one of the other issues with elevation, right, is then that change in altitude, especially once you get somewhere as high as the Himalayas. You mentioned earlier this kind of this nitrogen treatment and you said it had mixed results so tell us some more about that and do you even bother with that at this point yeah well, that's a great question another another passion <laughs> point mate you're getting me riled up here <laughs> so the simulated altitude training is a very very funny one at first glance it's really 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 good for mountain performance and particularly dealing with altitude but when you dig into it a little bit more it's not as good as you'd first think 
So basically, when you go up on the mountain in a natural sense of things, like um, it gets harder to breathe, obviously, and the oxygen in the air, the percentage of oxygen in the air will stay the same. And what actually changes is the uh, air pressure. So the oxygen particles in the air will just disperse a little bit more, making it harder to get oxygen in your body. The way they change altitude in these chambers, as opposed to changing the air pressure, they'll just get a big pump and a big uh, gas bag and pump nitrogen into the room. And that'll actually change the percentage of oxygen in the air. So you'll still get that feeling of not being able to get your breath and you'll still get that feeling of everything being quite difficult. And it still will change the percentage of oxygen in your blood quite similar to being in a room, but it's not exactly the same thing. So when it first came out, there's more, it still does get claimed that it does all these things like it can help prevent altitude sickness. It can pre-acclimatize you and improve X, Y, and Z. And really it is still new technology, but there isn't really a huge amount of research to back up that well, there's no research to back up it'll help prevent altitude sickness there's very little research to back up at least training in a chamber will help pre-acclimatize you it can give you some particular things in your body but it's not exactly the same as being on the mountain the main thing it's beneficial for is just improving endurance performance so when you're in there you're training it's a bit harder your body gets basically just gets fitter a little bit quicker um, and that's about it so I used to use it purely because the gym I was working at was that's what people come in for and that's pe what people are paying for. These days, I don't use it at all. Um, and I really think there's a lot a lot of other alternatives to prepare yourself for attitude. As for in Sydney, no, as I said, we don't have any attitude to actually go up and stay at, which is the single most important thing. But there's a whole bunch of other things you can do, which can give you a little bit of help. So things like nutrition strategies and hydration strategies and making sure your sleep's all right and learning how to breathe up there. And that's all a big part of the stuff that I use for my education for clients. Initially, it was just purely because Sydney-based people hadn't been to attitude. They don't know what to expect and they just needed those basics. And then I realized, look, all around the world, these basics aren't really being hugely covered. So it's turned into a really another passion point of mine to try and spread a bit of quality information around attitude in itself and trying to just give people who might not be 100% genetically gifted up there give them at least a little bit extra chance it might not be a magic cure or anything but just give those percentages that might just be able to get them through their adventures if you're coming up with these strategies do you use yourself as a human guinea pig do you test everything on yourself first and see if it works or do you... uh, no I, I use <laughs> i use my clients in all honesty um, so in the first i don't know probably 12, 14 months of me deciding, look, I want to do something differently. It was just a big testing process of, I tried to read everything I could of people who are already doing what I'm doing. And there wasn't, there's some quality information out there, but it's not a huge amount. So I was sort of taking bits and pieces from them, bits and pieces from uh, research journals that I'd seen, bits and pieces from just my experience as a coach, and then just trying it out on different people and sending them off and seeing how they went. And so it was sort of, as opposed to me having to test it out, it was uh, tested on my clients, but luckily it all worked out. And more or less, there's a few things of sort I don't really do anymore, which I used to, but most of it, well, after a lot of thought and a lot of trying out, sort of worked out and I'm safe to say that, you know, it's happy days. Well, that, that's a larger sample size anyway. So scientifically, it's better for you to test everything on your clients instead of yourself only. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. That's exactly <laughs> it. <laughs> Are there anything that you used to do training people that now you look back and you're like, oh, that was stupid. I don't do that anymore. And if anyone wants to do that, I highly recommend against it. Yeah, like I used to... Well, I used to train people in the very much the way that a lot of other people's train trekkers and just thinking, hey, they just need to do lots of reps on the mountain and they just need to be walking all day. So I'm going to train them in this sort of thing where they're just constantly working in the gym. So they're just doing lots and lots of repetitions of squats and lunges and box jumps and this and that. And I did that because people in my gym were training like that. I thought, you know what, that must be the way to go. Um, and so I did that. 
These days, I really don't do much of that. I probably might do it for four to six weeks where I'm doing heaps of repetitions of stuff and just trying to chase that muscular burn. The rest of the time I'm spending with people is either focusing on that sort of prehab stuff, which we're talking about before preventing injury, but then also getting into sort of heavier and more difficult strength training, which at first thought might seem a bit counterintuitive that you need that type of strength to help you up on the mountain. But when it comes down to it, if you can get a little bit extra strength in your muscles, it's amazing, not only for injury prevention, it can improve your movement efficiency, meaning every step you take uses less energy. It can improve your walking speed, make hills, going up hills quite a bit easier, and then just make you feel incredibly, incredibly confident in any situation. So I put a lot of emphasis on that. And that's not something I really did probably when I first started training this population. But yeah, again, it's really, really been a big change in my trekkers and my mountaineers since I've started doing that, I think. So for people that can't fly all the way down to Sydney and get you to train them, what sort of resources do you recommend people go to to like research some things on their own and kind of come up with exercise routines and training routines that could benefit them, specifically in the mountains or in trekking or hiking and backpacking type activities? So I'm on a big mission at the moment just to sort of put as much free content out there as possible to just try and get, as I said, there's not a huge amount out there. So I just want to pump out as much as I can. So on my website, at Facebook and Instagram, I'm putting out stuff daily around workouts and training strategies and attitude strategies and x y and z for other resources i think the the other guys are doing really well um is there's uphill uphill athlete who are sort of the industry leaders of what they're doing they're a bit more focused around the higher performing people so the serious mountaineers and the ski mountaineering and stuff like that but and if you like the technical stuff they're pretty good there's another bloke who is based out of seattle if anyone's in seattle uh lee who i literally just met the other day but he does a something similar to me, which is called Trailside Fitness. And he puts some really, really good stuff out on injury prevention. Um, so I would highly recommend you check him out. And then obviously I'll give myself a little plug. I do my online training as well. So a big portion of what I do is not just Sydney based, but I do the online personal training as well, which I deal with people in the US and New Zealand, in the UK, and they come to me and we do all our training online and I'll just tell them what they need to do. I'll educate them on what they need to do. And that seems to work out pretty well. So yeah, shameless plug there, but what can you do? <laughs> There's also, so I know I, I read it a few years ago and I came across it and I'd, I'd love to hear what your opinion is of it. The New Alpinism, are you familiar with that book? Yeah, th- those are the guys from Uphill Athlete. I okay, so that is so them. Okay. They're, the, they're literally the guys that wrote the book on this type of stuff. And they're the only people who've really released a quality publication. There's a few people in the world doing what they do, but they're the only ones who've done it publicly. And so, as I said, they're really, really good. All the stuff they do is really, really backed up with a huge amount of research, a huge amount of experience. The only negative thing I'd ever say about it is it does get a little bit technical for those who aren't interested in tracking training zones or tracking training volumes and stuff like that but if you are interested in learning a little bit deeper about that yeah the training for the new alpinism it's an amazing book um, really gives a comprehensive rundown on all the stuff that surrounding preparing for these adventures it goes really in depth the the theory behind everything they propose and why they propose it that way and even a fair amount of the science behind it yes yeah, so i was i was curious i was curious if, if you were going to be a fan of theirs or if you could say oh that that book's straight bullshit let me tell you what the real <laughs> thing is yeah well, well i i love their work and it's just a lot of the people that come to see me or i talk to just are not interested in that technical side of things and they'd much rather you know not have to wear a heart rate monitor or not have to do 
X, Y, and Z or not understand why I'm doing this particular training load and they just want to get out and get ready. That's sort of a little bit different to what I'm doing, but I, I do love their stuff. But even me as a trainer, I get a little bit lost in numbers sometimes. <laughs> I steer clear of at least the confusing stuff. Are there any particular things any of your clients come to you, say they're your new clients, and you're like, immediately stop doing this? immediately change this so there's certain things whether it be nutrition or exercise or whatever that you're noticing everyone is doing this and i'm having to tell everyone to stop doing this or change something here all the time all the time and it's something that i've learned over the years when people come in with something they're very very passionate about or they've been doing for a while you got to be really really careful about telling them well a if it's wrong or b if it's not the best way of going about things because the second people if they've been doing something even for a few weeks they like to dig their heels in and They might have seen results from something, but it might not be 100% accurate to what they're aiming for or whatever. So you've got to be relatively careful with that. There's a few things, but probably the biggest one is the whole high-intensity interval training that is incredibly popular at the moment. And the types of crossfit training over here, it's been CrossFit sort of turned into, I don't think, has F45 made it over your way yet? I'm not sure. I'm not familiar. But I, yeah. I do feel like CrossFit's popularity is waning in the US yeah. or else I'm just coming across it a lot less. So over in Australia and this side of the world, and I'm sure it will hit you very, very soon, is like all that um, really, really good stuff from CrossFit and sense the competition, that fast-paced fun stuff. A lot of people were sort of sort of waning on our end of things as well. People falling out of it because there was just too much for them, maybe a bit of injury risk or whatever. But then there's become this other segment of training, which is sort of like CrossFit in that sort of high intensity stuff, but it's very, very, a lot less complicated. So the stuff you're doing is really, really simple. You might just be doing squats, you might be doing box jumps or whatever. And that's become a really, really popular mode of training over here. I'm sure it's going to be popping up over your way pretty soon. But basically, yeah, I've got to spend half my days fighting against this battle that high intensity interval training is the best way to train for anything and people think that look if I go in the gym and I absolutely flog myself for 20 30 40 minutes that's going to get me ready to tackle anything and that can be really really good for sort of general fitness and general weight loss but for if you're training for a longer trek or um, mountain climb or whatever it's not really an amazing way of going about it purely for the fact that it's training really really different energy systems so when you're hiking or trekking you're going for hours and hours and hours and hours training for 45 minutes full full intensity 100% it's not really going to prepare your body physiologically for the demands of a trek but a lot of people try to spend their time and they're like look this compromise between intensity which their trainers in these gyms are telling them because they want to plug their product you know this is the best way to prepare for it but in all honesty it's not 100% so I spend a lot of my time trying to pull people away from that I'll never say don't do it entirely but I try to like minimize it so it turns into more of a cherry on the top of the cake situation as opposed to the whole cake which a lot of people try to do so um that's probably the number one thing i think yeah, i remember i looked in a crossfit at one point and decided that that i didn't think it was a wise direction for me to go but one thing i did notice about it that i did think was pretty pretty useful was kind of this community aspect where people kind of hold each other accountable and encourage each other to come in each day and call each other when they don't make it, it seems like that would be extremely valuable but perhaps killing yourself till you vomit every day maybe maybe not as useful <laughs> yeah and 100 percent that <laughs> that whole community aspect of it gyms tried to do it before and the smaller gyms might have had it but as a massive training philosophy they were the people who just brought it into light and they pop repopularized like strength training for so many people in the world because it was just this as you said this group of friends training who were pushing each other and who were holding each other accountable and they were just like living together and they were training together and they were eating together and it was just like this massive thing and that's such a valuable thing and such a rare thing in the training world 
I think a lot of people are trying to do it. We're coming from the business side side of fitness, like so many gyms are trying to do that and trying to push it, but not a huge amount of them are nailing it compared to that CrossFit as a whole. So 100% agree on that side of things. Though, yeah, maybe not the spewing up after your sessions and that. <laughs> so what would you like to see in the future for you and your career moving forward? Yeah, I think, well, I've got the big mission. In the next 10 years, I sort of want to be, I've got it written on, written on my notebook that I'm, <laughs> in the next 10 years, I want to be the number one person in physical preparation for the adventure community, which is a bit hard to judge, but that's what I'm sort of striving for. So in the next 10 years, I really just want to see a lot of more of the, the actual trekking companies and the people on the business side of things sort of taking a little bit more responsibility for their trekkers preparation. It's not their place to be giving exercise prescription or it's not their place to be you know, recommending exercise to people just to take a little bit of responsibility and say, I'm going to pass this out to a professional, whether it's myself or another person who's doing the same thing as I am. And just so we can get a little bit more quality information on quality preparation for people who are going in and they just blatantly trust what they get from the professionals they're just going to do. And so hopefully if we can make an impact there, at least in the professional sense, we'll be seeing less rates of injury and people dropping out in their treks, less rates of people hopefully getting attitude sickness and more just happy faces at the finish of their trek as opposed to that massive grimace when their body's broken. So that's probably the number one priority that I'm aiming for. And yeah, sort of day by day, just chipping away at that, really. Yeah, and you mentioned before about putting together YouTube videos and other things. So you tell us now where people can go and watch your videos or any other information you share, or just if there are other places online where you like to share things that you want people to be able to find. Yeah, like best place to find me is um, summitstrength.com.au. That's my website where I share all my articles and I have all my training information on there. I'm also putting up regular stuff on Instagram and Facebook. That's th- both through summitstrength.au. My YouTube channel is pro- a bit dead these days, so you know probably don't go there. Um, <laughs> but I would say they're the best places to find me and to grab the information. And as I said previously, anything from the uphill athlete guys, anything from Trailside Fitness, give it my big thumbs up. And yeah, hopefully that'll help, help a few people out. Yeah, and what I like to do here when we start to get to the end of the show is just ask you if there's anything we didn't talk about that you would like to talk about or if there's a thought you want to leave people with before we go a lot of people have the the opinion and the attitude with these whether it's hiking whether it's trekking backpacking or mountaineering that you don't really need to train for these things and you can either want a get fit on the trail or b you don't need to get fit for these and you can just push yourself through that is a really really popular mindset in the adventure community but i'm trying to change that mindset in the sense of saying yes a lot of people can get through these things without training or they can get fit on the trail but if you do put a little bit of time, a little bit of effort into preparing properly beforehand, you can really eliminate a lot of that chance of just relying on luck. So you can make sure that your body's not going to be breaking down. You can make sure in your position where you can actually enjoy your adventure and not just trudge through. And you just make sure that you are actually going to succeed and not just potentially fail just because you haven't prepared. Take these things seriously. They, are, they, are, they aren't ever going to be a walk in the park. They are going to be a serious challenge. And with just a little bit of commitment, a little bit of um, effort beforehand, you can really, really change your chances of success and really increase your enjoyment. Yeah, and I'm not going to let you go just yet because I just thought of something else. I think a lot of people, if they want to get fit in this way, they think personal trainer and what they're going to find is people who are either going to help them towards body sculpting or bodybuilding of some sort. So if people were looking for a personal trainer specifically for like adventure activities, how should they go about finding one in their area? What would you recommend to them? See, that's a really, really good question because for the life of me, I don't have a great answer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
I'd say if you're trying to find someone in your local area, at least find someone who has a, a background in endurance performance. So whether it's marathon running or triathlons or, or whatever, that's probably as close as you're going to get. There aren't a huge amount of people who are doing it for particularly for the adventure community. And it won't be 100% the same, but at least you'll get some a lot of those endurance principles coming over. It is if you just go on your everyday trainer, as you said, you never know what you're going to get. Some people might love the muscle building. Some people might love weight loss. And people, every personal trainer on the sun will claim that they know what they're doing for every situation. And they'll claim that they can get you ready for a hike. But in all honesty, it's hit and miss with a general personal trainer. So at the very, very least, look at a, an endurance coach. And if you do want something special, there are a few people floating around online, which is sort of the way to go these days. But they're probably your two options, I think. I think this would be a great time to end the show. Yeah, I appreciate you getting a hold of me, talking to me on Skype today. Your nice sunny bedroom while I sit here in the dark backyard. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, thanks a lot. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate you having me on. Um, Yeah, stoked to be on here and hopefully some, uh, some of the listeners can get some value out of it. And now it's that time for you to head to our website, gogetoutside.com. Look for this episode 93 with Rowan Smith. And there you will find photographs and links to all of the things we spoke about in today's show, including links to Rowan's online summit program and his podcast, the Training for Trekking podcast. And while you're doing that, should you want to contact us here at the show, there are a number of ways to do that. You can send us an email, go at butcherbirdstudios.com, or send us a text or voicemail, 818-925-0106. And please do us a favor and head to your podcast purveyor of choice, subscribe to the show, rate and review it if possible, and share this with someone who you think would enjoy it. This episode of the Go Get Outside podcast was produced, recorded, and edited by me, your host, Jason Milligan. Additional help was provided by Griffin Davis. And as always, it has been brought to you by Butcher Bird Studios. Next time on the show. Come back February 1st, we will be speaking to E.C. Moe. She is a caver, canyoneer, and scuba diver, in addition to being a water quality scientist for Heal the Bay. So come back February 1st for a conversation with Isimo. See you then. <laughs>